I've heard a rumour that we'll be building a secret airfield and barracks out by the river on the other side of town. Once we've done our bit, the Americans will set up the airfield there and supply the base. Amazing what you learn when you're in my job. From what I recall, soldiers just love to spend their pay, so their presence should bring in a few quid. In fact, it could be the biggest boom around here since the gold rush. Yep, since the gold ran out, it's been pretty slim pickings. The only things that have stopped Wayne Gamble turning into a ghost town are the cattle stations. So here I am, wearing my best uniform today, and Gracie's polished my boots and even the brass on the, my buttons and on my buckle. She's a good woman, my missus. She insisted I wear my medals, even though I wasn't keen. It's a bit much, don't you think? I feel like I'm a bit of a lair, really. I'm not the one for showing off. You're a fair Lincoln war hero, Jack Fury, she said. So don't you hide it. You wear your medals with pride. I've learned over the years that when your wife insists you do something, well, you're better off just going along with her. Nod your head, hang on and say nothing. My medals are shining so bright in the sun that they're just about blinding me. It seems like there's thunder over the horizon, so loud it makes me look up at the sky. There's not a cloud in sight. I listen for a while, but the noise doesn't go away. I figure it's got to be the rumble of the convoy. It must have reached the outskirts of town. By the sound of it, there are a lot of vehicles headed this way and I can feel the vibrations all the way up my legs. I'm eager to get it all over and done with, go back to the station and have a nice cup of tea. Then a thought forces itself into my mind. What if it's not the Americans at all? I say a silent prayer that it's not the Japs, just in case. Whoever it is, it's time to look sharp, Jack Fury. They're approaching, Reynolds mutters, wipes his lips with his napkin and stands up. The officers watch like eagles as he pulls back his chair and jumps to his feet. Gentlemen, he declares, our boys are on the approach. We have work to do. He taps me on the arm. You too, Jack. The bombers are coming. I'm on my feet and raring to go. I'm keen as mustard to see them. I follow the Colonel out of the mess, only barely aware that it's emptied behind us and that everyone's assembling at the base of the control tower. Among the steely clouds, I can just make out a group of planes coming in from the west. They hadn't followed the coast. I can't yet work out what they are or how many, but they seem to stretch out a long way. I can faintly hear the hum of their motors. The inland route's the quickest. No surprise there, I mumble. A junior officer hands Reynolds a pair of binoculars. Great, he counts off 12. They're going into their final approach, sir, the officer comments. It's good to see them again, he says jubilantly. The planes tip their wings and wheel towards the airfield one by one, and it reminds me of a Busby Berkeley dance routine. Here, take a look, Jack. Reynolds hands me his binoculars. As the clouds part, the sun makes a newly dried concrete sparkle. I adjust my focus. They're huge. I can't believe how big the buggers are. Then again, the only aircraft we see around here are flying doctors' planes and the occasional tiger moth. The bombers are streamlined and slick with their combat colours, a big white star stamped on the fuselage. I spot the machine guns sticking out of them. It's overwhelming and I feel myself oddly tearing up. I hand the binoculars back to him. One after another, they touch down on the tarmac, as lightly as ducks on a pond. Whenever the tyres of the Mitchell aircraft screech, the men whistle and cheer. 
See, says Reynolds, his eyes gleaming. I told you that the Japs don't stand a chance now that we're here. One by one, 11 planes land without incident and taxi to their allocated spots as men peel off from the crowd to assist the ground crews and to welcome them until there's just one left to land. He's lagging behind. I'm no expert on planes, but he looks to be in a bit of trouble. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. T.W. Lawless is the author of the Peter Clancy series of crime fiction novels now in their fifth volume. Kay Bell is the author of three works of fiction, including The Lawnsley Legacy, Ella's Secret Family Recipes, and her most recent, The American Governess. Today, I'm talking to T.W. Lawless and Kay Bell about their first collaboration, Fury's War. T.W. and Kay, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hello. Hi, Greg. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you, Greg. I want to talk first about Jack Fury, the man. Jack Fury is a character from what some might say the pre-dawn of the age of political correctness, but he's also a compassionate guy, if in a bit of an old-fashioned way. But he's a common-sense individual, you might say. How much of a departure is he from characters you might have written about in the past? Well, he's sort of a a pre-dawn version of Peter Clancy because he's a hard-drinking, black-and-white sort of Australian guy too. But Jack's from a previous generation who was, you know, that generation was very black-and-white and their attitudes, you know, some hard-working, God-fearing and probably, you know, not all embracing of everyone. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he's, I don't know, some similarities there. And Kay, for you? Oh, for me, totally different, totally different, um, because I tend to talk about and write about uh, younger people who are still naive, still learning, still forming their opinions, still growing. So generally they're a million miles away from Jack Fury. A lot of your characters are female characters as well. They are female characters, yeah. And so how did you uh, approach this new character, this a man's man, you might say? Well, I think I drew on people that I have met and I know um, in the way I approached Jack Fury. He, uh, I have a very clear, I think we both do, a very clear uh, picture of him in our minds. So it hasn't been very hard to flesh Put flesh on the bones. Um, we have met characters like that. Oh, absolutely. And like I was brought up in the country in North Queensland, so it's reminiscent of those characters of those times in the 60s and 70s. You know, country men, you know, that hard, hard sort of men that uh, were around then. The whole story is told from inside the mind of Jack Fury and because we're inside his mind, there's kind of no filter to his thoughts did you always intend for him to be so raw and, and he's really confrontational at times too? Well, I think there's a rawness in him in the atmosphere of the country. It's very raw. It's all very visceral, I guess. So I want, we wanted to attain that. And writing in first person, I think you have to achieve that. Uh, yeah, he doesn't filter anything in his mind. He's not the sort of man who um, dupes himself. Um, and I don't think he pretends to be a saint. I think he has 
um, perhaps a view of himself which is a little bit more condemning than perhaps other people. So he sees himself, he's a lot tougher on himself than I think other people would be mm. looking at him on the outside. Mm. So he's warts and all, he's got baggage, he's brought an awful lot of baggage in from the First World War and his experiences. Well, and he's got PTSD, it was, it was called shell shock then. So he's got a, you know, he's, he's damaged. So we wanted to achieve that too. And that certainly comes through in the story. And he's still a very acerbic but very likeable character at the same time. Yeah. And yet, Kay, I think I read that you like to think of your characters as people rather than characters, if I can phrase it that way. What do you mean by that? Well, I like to think of my characters as, as you said, as real people rather than just characters I've created to carry a narrative. Um, I guess I'm more character-driven as in the people need to be surprising. They need to do what real people do. Sometimes you think you know them and then just as you do, they'll do something completely out of left field. So that's what I mean. I don't like cliches. I never have. And I try to avoid creating caricatures. Then in my experience, I've met an awful lot of people over a, a relatively long life. People are rarely villains or heroes they're not all good or all bad and I like that light and shade and I like exploring mm. that. I want to ask you a question now TW your Peter Clancy series is all about this well-traveled and worldly wise investigative journalist Peter Clancy you know he's traveled the world he's been to the US he's been all around but mm. what brought you back to a small town setting like Wangamba where Fury's War is set? Well, Wayne Gamba is actually a fictitious town, as you probably worked out. And because I, as once again, I've gone back to my childhood and my early years. I was brought up on a cattle station and the family sold a cattle station. We moved into a small town called Charters Towers, which has, incidentally was a former gold mining town and incidentally was a, a former American base during the Second World War. Had an airfield and had Australian soldiers and American soldiers. So... And a lot of that um, harking back to the stories my uh, father told me. I also want to talk to you both about working together. So this book is a portrait, it's a landscape, and it's a story from two minds. Uh, it's a beautiful evocation of an Australia long gone, long past, and sometimes I felt I was actually in Wongamba, fictional or not. But how does such a finely etched portrait of an Australian and an Australian town come to be divided up between two minds? I guess there's one word, workshopping. <laughs> that, and we've been together a long time, which mm. also makes it easier. We've travelled together and separately through a lot of Australia, and I love the bush, always have done, and the outback, so it's very easy for me to see this town, and I think, um, and I've also been to Charters Towers, so we're basically describing something um, that is fictional but it's based to a certain degree on on places that we know very well well it's, it's very real to me so so it's a reason out of common experience but surely you didn't agree on everything uh, no 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 <laughs> no we i wrote wrote it then Kay went and, and looked at it and she added her stuff and then we talked about it because you know we were we had differences of opinion, but, uh, you know, it all comes to fruition eventually. It started as an idea that Tom had been kicking around for an awfully long time 
and the vehicle in which um, we decided to put Tom's ideas, I guess, was my concept. And so it um, there was wasn't really so much of an overlap as we brought, I guess, our different strengths to it. Mm. And in the that creative process sounds like a bit like a tag team writing. Um, yeah. What came first in that process? Was it Jack Fury the man or the story or the town of Wangamba itself? Yeah, I think the story and then the town. Then we thought, who's going who's to be able to drive the story? Because uh, we wanted, you know, murder mysteries. So we thought of a local police sergeant to drive it. Yeah. And um, you came up with the name, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jack Fury was, I guess, an amalgam of both of our ideas. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've met a few old Jack Furies. <laughs> Jack Furies in in Outback Police. Oh yeah, yeah. Queensland Police, nineteen seventies. Yeah, not that I was a, a, a naughty boy, but you know they sort of ruled the town. You know, small town, they ruled. He seems like such a real character and he uses words and phrases and exhibits attitudes from another era. Yeah. But he, he's still a very astute character, a very keen observer of behaviour, and he's got a really wonderful sense of humour, self-deprecating sense of humour, mm. very much in the Australian tradition. Yeah. Is there a touch of nostalgia for a lost Australia in this book somewhere? I think, you know... Aging baby boomers, uh, we tend to look back in those times, and I think we didn't like those times when we were growing up. We always thought those people were sort of authoritarian figures. They were strong people, and now we can sort of look back on it and reminisce about them. And I, I feel honoured that I was able to retain some of those stories they told me, especially from my uh, father and my mother, because they were both country people. So I was. Some of those stories in the book are from my father. Sort of, you know, worked, worked reworked, but yeah, essentially from him about the impact of uh, there was 20,000 Americans in Charters Towers during the war. So that's going to make a huge impact on a little town that's never had much of an outlook on the rest of the world. Finally, I just want to ask you about the way the story begins and the way it ends, which is in a nursing home. Mm. And that's where, I guess, Jack's sense of humour really shines through or yeah. where we get the first taste of it, at least. Why did you decide to construct the book in that way? Oh, the other thing that you may not be aware of is TW's had an incarnation previously as a registered nurse. Retired now. So I worked in nursing homes and I met some of these characters, some of these old characters, and I used to listen to their stories. And so I just thought that was a good way for it to start and end. And, you know, I work with the elderly and sometimes they don't like being old and you always think about what were they like when they were younger, you know, you sort of think they were only that age. But they must have been some, you know, energetic people with a lot of things to do. So I've always thought, what were they like when they were younger? I actually want to just read a very short passage from the beginning, and I just wonder where this all came from. The problem is, whenever I try to speak these days, all that happens is my tongue scrapes across my dentures. My mouth wobbles, but no words come out. And when I do make a sound, well, to be honest, it's a bit like a fart. 
Um, you've experienced people. It's, 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 just from, it's just from experience, people trying to talk and, you know, it must be quite frustrating when they have a stroke and they can't talk and they want to say something. Like I've looked after people and all they could, they were talking, but all they could say was the four-letter word. And that's what, you know, that's all they could say. So it was quite sad, really. It is sad, but it's also very representative of Jack. And mm -hmm. I think because of those passages, he's immediately likeable. No, and no. he's the sort of character that I think most people would love to meet, whatever state he was in. <laughs> so, TWNK, I want to thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. It's been great to talk great. to you, Greg. Thank you very much, Greg. I've been talking to T.W. Lawless and Kay Bell about their first collaborative novel, Fury's War. It's published by Campanile Books and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.